0: Australia in the World is a podcast produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. The AAA wants Australians to know, understand and engage more in international affairs. All views expressed are solely those of the speakers themselves. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. As always, you're with Darren Lim from the ANU and Alan Gingell, National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. Hello, Alan. Hello, Darren. It is Friday, the 27th of May today, and as everyone must know, last Saturday Australia held a federal election where the incumbent centre right coalition government of Prime Minister Scott Morrison was soundly defeated, winning its lowest proportion of seats as a share of the House of Representatives since 1946. As of now, it seems likely, but not guaranteed, that the opposition Labour Party, led by new Prime Minister Anthony Albanese, Will just win enough seats to hold a bare majority in the lower house with 76 of 151. But even if that happens, Labor will, of course, need help in the Senate, the upper house, to pass legislation. The other big story is the success of the minor parties and independents, who now combine to hold at least 15 seats in the lower house. And combined, the major parties received less than 70% of the primary first preference vote. Now, Alan, in May of 2019, three years ago, as it turns out, we recorded an incoming government brief discussion. That was episode number 19, named for the documents prepared by government departments for new ministers. I'm going to quote your explainer, quote, these briefs are designed to explain to the incoming minister what the department she or he is responsible for is and does, what the immediate issues facing an incoming government will be, and how the policies of the party set out during the election campaign will be implemented. This is especially important, of course, if there is a change of government, so party manifestos and speeches are scoured for detail, end quote. So today, we're going to do a kind of incoming government brief, but we also feel compelled to talk about the context and meaning of this election for Australia and the world. And even events from the last few days are going to intrude in what they mean for the new government. So let's get started. So Alan, let's start by imagining we are foreign diplomats writing cables back to our home capitals about the election. Two high-level questions I imagine they would want to answer. One, what does this result tell us about Australian politics? And two, without getting into the specifics yet, does it hold any top-line messages about Australian foreign policy? Well, there are several
1: messages about Australian politics, I think. One is that this remains a high-functioning democracy in the face of all the international challenges to other democracies that we've seen in recent years. The elections were held securely and effectively effectively. The outgoing Prime Minister accepted the result that night, and the incoming Prime Minister spoke modestly about his victory and offered thanks to the predecessor. Two days later, the new PM is sworn in, and the country has changed peacefully and efficiently. So that's a real tribute, I think, to Australia. I went back to the local polling booth at the primary school down the road that I'd voted at for the past 20 years or so, and I was struck again as I bought my democracy sausage uh, by the celebratory atmosphere. And what was new this time was the huge number of volunteers handing out how to vote cards for a couple of the independent candidates in the ACT Senate race. I spoke to one of them while I was standing in line and this was a middle-aged man who said this was the first time in his life that he'd ever been involved in politics And that sort of thing was obviously an experience shared across the country. As you began by saying, it was a historic election in several ways. Between them, the governing coalition and the Labor opposition only garnered a bit more than two-thirds of first preference votes. So one in three Australian voters was willing to vote for another party or an independent candidate and that the rise of the independents was new, and those who did best and, uh, as you said, reduced the Liberal Party's seats to the lowest ever number were overwhelmingly women, and though campaigning on three issues, really. The integrity of government, the standing of women after parliamentary and party scandals that affected the Liberals most directly, and above all on the need for more ambitious goals on climate change. It's hard to overemphasise the symbolic importance of these victories. I mean, to anyone who knows Australian politics, the the seats that fell were those of the Liberal Party's founder, Sir Robert Menzies, former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull's seat, the former Treasurer Peter Costello's, the former Foreign Minister Julie Bishop's. All these were wealthy inner-suburban electorates. As we saw in, or as we were given warning of, really, in pre-election polling, women were instrumental in the shift. Disproportionately to men, they did not like Scott Morrison. And in the so-called teal seats, that is, seats which were conservative in nature but green on issues like climate change, the, the winners were largely women who the Liberal Party might once have taken for granted as their own. Allegra Spender, who won Wentworth, is the granddaughter of Sir Percy Spender, who was External Affairs Minister under Menzies, was instrumental in delivering the ANZUS Treaty, and the daughter of another Liberal Minister. So if you add up the gains of the independents, the Greens and the ALP itself, at least in two-party preferred terms, the best news out of the election foreign policy for me was that Australia might finally be able to resolve the largest failure of public policy this century, which has been our inability to develop a sustainable climate and energy policy, and that, that's going to have real impact.
0: Great. Well, thanks for that granular detail, Alan. Let me zoom out a bit and try to situate Australian politics through more of a comparative lens. The one statistic that sticks in my mind is that after the 2018 midterms in the United States, the 10 wealthiest congressional districts were represented by Democrats. And I see that as one of the starkest examples anywhere of a realignment of um, at least Western politics, away from traditional left-right class political issues. And I think if you squint a bit, you can sort of see that here with the rise of these teal independents or the victory of the Labor candidate in the seat that I grew up in, Higgins, which was one of the ones you mentioned, Alan, which is in inner-southeast Melbourne, which had been previously held by two Liberal Prime Ministers, Harold Haunted, John Gorton, and, as you said, Alan, later on, Treasurer Peter Costello. This is not, of course, to say that everyone in these electorates is wealthy, but relatively speaking, these electorates are definitely um, closer to one end of the income spectrum. Meanwhile, the rural-focused National Party held on to all of its seats, and indeed in Queensland, where the Liberal and National parties run together, all of their seats were retained except for an inner city loss to the Greens. So my point number one is to wonder whether some kind of geographic divide between rural and exurban versus city and suburban might be emerging or crystallising in Australia, but of course not nearly as starkly in the United States. For example, the exception to this claim would be that Labour strengthened its hold over Victorian seats like McEwen, which is just north of Melbourne, and Corangamite, which is in and around Geelong. My second point is to note that your observation about the decline in primary vote share for the traditional centre-right and centre-left parties is, of course, a trend elsewhere in the world, especially in continental Europe. But the consequences are different across political systems. In the United States, rather than seeing new political parties, you see what were once fringe political actors becoming prominent within the traditional main parties, whether that's Donald Trump for the GOP or the squad for the Democrats. But elsewhere, which includes Europe and Australia, it's the success of smaller parties such as the Greens or smaller far left and far right parties. And here in Australia, that, of course, is One Nation and United Australia, who are on the right, who got around 9% of the national vote. And then you have the independents, who are, of course, more ideologically centrist, but fringe in the sense that they don't have party structures behind them. The good news, I think, is that, the nature of our electoral system portends, I think, relative stability, even with a very large crossbench of independents and minor parties. I think for top-line Australian foreign policy, though, I don't see it really means anything truly groundbreaking, other than where you finished, Alan, which is the unique issue of climate change. As I've said many times before, My assessment is that Australian foreign policy faces pretty strong structural constraints given our middling size and the strategic landscape and thus operates within a fairly narrow and bipartisan band on the biggest issues. And so I don't see our political system, when you think about the stability domestically, really yielding up any populist iconoclasts anytime soon who would try and break out of that mould. Now, Alan, my next question is then how those cables would be received in foreign capitals. How do you think this result will be understood and received around the world?
1: A senior Japanese diplomat once told me that an election result is like a Christmas present. The foreign government is required to open it, to smile happily and declare it was just the thing it <laughs> had always wanted. So, uh, uh, so no doubt... Some individuals who'd been close to Scott Morrison, Boris Johnson maybe, will be disappointed. But on the whole, I think the reaction will range from, at one end of the spectrum, the outgoing French foreign minister who could not conceal his pleasure at the result And uh, the defeat of the Morrison government and what he called its brutality, cynicism and notorious incompetence, uh, which was a memorable uh, description. And that'll range to the sort of neutral openness on the part of others who will be waiting to see what it will deliver. The exception, of course, is climate change. And that makes a real difference with the South Pacific, the the Europeans and the uh, Biden administration.
0: A few days ago, I was listening to the Pod Save the World podcast, which is hosted by former Obama staffers, Ben Rhodes and Tommy Vitor. And they were gleeful that Morrison had gone. And indeed, the previous week before the election, they were you know, trying to energise their Australian friends to, <laughs> to help bring that result over the line. And they described it as a victory for climate, first and foremost. But then Rhodes proceeded to observe that in Canada... Australia, New Zealand, they were seeing a succession of centre-left victories, and they hoped that might reach the UK as well. Interestingly then, they brought up the fact that the Kiwi Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern, was at that point in the United States. But before she'd left New Zealand, she had contracted COVID. And then with isolation periods and so forth, that was complicating the possible meeting with Joe Biden. And this was a small point for the podcast, but it was fascinating that they said that they thought Biden should do everything he can to meet with her despite the logistical challenges. They suggested meeting out on the White House balcony or whatever, you know, sort of outside in the fresh air. And Rhodes said that the administration, quote, should try to express support for leaders doing the right thing, end quote, and that, quote, we should be less bashful of, on the centre-left progressive side of things in backing up our people around the world, end quote. So my guess is that inside the White House they are quite pleased, just as Trump was impressed with Morrison's victory in that surprise election in 2019. And so I do see a trend here towards partisan politics crossing international boundaries. It's been mostly on the right to date, but perhaps the left will begin to follow suit. All right, let's move to our second item. And Alan... You know, when I introduced our first incoming government brief back in May of 2019, when we were less than a year old as a podcast, I said that we aspired to attain the status of a venerable Canberra institution. And I see no reason to repudiate that aspiration, which therefore compels us to venture deep inside what now former Prime Minister Scott Morrison called the Canberra bubble. Quite right, quite right. (laughs) Or inside the beltway, for those who are familiar with that term. So here we go. How do you think the balance of influence in policymaking across government departments might change under the new government? And what might be the implications for foreign policy? Well, this is interesting.
1: You have to begin from the position that foreign policy has returned as a central element of statecraft. And you begin there because that's exactly what Foreign Minister Penny Wong has said. And uh, she's spoken of her commitment to diplomacy and the building up of DFAT's skills. I think she's going to be the most politically influential Australian Foreign Minister since Alexander Downer, who, of course, was a former leader of his own party. She has political authority in her own right as leader of the government in the Senate. She's often cited as the most admired woman in politics, so the public knows her. And you could see the closeness of her relationship with the new PM during the election campaign. And as any public servant who has confronted her uh, during Senate estimates knows, she also has an inbuilt gravitas, which will help impose authority locally and will be persuasive to her international uh, interlocutors. We don't yet know who Labor's Defence Minister will be, probably Richard Miles, according to press rumours, or who will be Home Affairs Minister given the uh, election defeat of the Shadow Minister, Christina Keneally. But, you know, one way or another you'd have to assume that the incoming National Security Committee of Cabinet will be both pretty talented and pretty united. And uh, that's, I think, interesting because... When we weigh the Morrison government's history from a greater distance, my guess is that we're going to think of one of its foreign policy failings as coming from internal fracturing. There clearly wasn't a close relationship between Morrison and Defence Minister Dutton or between either of those two and the Foreign Minister Maurice Payne, who often seemed out of play. And as a result, the messaging was confused and sometimes contradictory. It just didn't feel like a system working seamlessly in the whole of government way it's meant to. So in short, I hope and expect foreign policy to take up a greater role in Australian statecraft.
0: I just want to hold for a moment on this possibility or probability that Labor's deputy leader, who is Deputy Prime Minister, Richard Miles, will become the Defence Minister. He, of course, would follow on from Peter Dutton, um, who, if I recall correctly, wanted the job, had wanted it for a long time, and shifted across from the powerful home affairs portfolio to get it, and who was, at the time, still a very powerful politician, even though he had lost the leadership battle to Scott Morrison. And now, it looks like, post-election, he's going to become the opposition leader. The reason why this is notable to me is that it wasn't that long ago, the mid-2010s, that, in my memory at least that the defence portfolio was seen as a difficult ministry, one that wasn't inherently desirable and not one that you would give to political performers. I went and checked, and since John Howard's election victory in 1996, until Morrison's defeat, Australia had six foreign ministers, seven prime ministers, but 14 defence ministers. Now, I get yeah. it. I, I can see why defence is particularly attractive right now because of the broadening of the ambit of national security. And of course, we add AUKUS into that mix lately. But still, you know, with that historical context, the continued prominence of defence, the prestige of defence maybe even, is still notable to me. I mean, Alan, looking back in history, can you see or do you recall defence having this kind of prestige in the past?
1: I think it had. I mean, obviously, during the Vietnam War, it did. Um, other periods like this, even, you know, you think back to the uh, Hawke government and Kim Beasley's role in defense there and in foreign policy as well, because it was really uh, Beasley who sort of presided over the redefinition of the ANZUS Treaty, which was uh, really critical in guiding Australia and the alliance relationship through a pretty torrid time when New Zealand opted out of it. So Mm. it's, you know, these things go in cycles and you can see now why someone like Richard Miles might not see it as the end of the career in the Mm. way that several people suggested at the turn of the century.
0: Mm. Okay, well, let's turn now to how Australian foreign policy might change under this new government. Of course, as I said earlier, there has been strong bipartisanship on the biggest questions, and a fact, that fact irks some observers. So let me ask you, Alan, for a part prediction and part advice. Do you expect to see big changes under Labor, and what should the new government do or not do to achieve those changes and otherwise effectively pursue Australia's national interest on the world stage?
1: As we said in the last podcast, It's certainly true that the three pillars of the alliance, the region and the rules-based order continue to apply, but there will be differences. I, I was interested in the emphasis that Anthony Albanese placed in his victory speech on Labor's commitment to Indigenous issues, especially the need for constitutional change to permit an Indigenous voice to Parliament. Penny Wong had earlier spoken about appointing a First Nations ambassador in DFAT. As you say, there is this strong bipartisanship on big issues, but Labor will want a foreign policy which reflects its own priorities and values too. Reading what Penny Wong said when she arrived in the service, she said, this is a different Australian government and this is a different Australia. So there's going to be less focus, obviously, on old friendships from the Anglosphere, or at least more sort of less public discussion Mm. about that, more on Australia's multicultural identity and the place of Indigenous culture. Labor will take more account of multilateral organisations. We won't get any of the negative globalism arguments uh, again. And one of the things that's impressed me about Albanese's approach, even in these early days is the emphasis that he puts on thinking over the long term. So we're going to be in for a less frenetic pace than we were when Labor was last in government under Kevin Rudd, but I think there's likely to be a more careful layering of foundations, at least I hope there will be, a more careful laying of foundations to achieve long-term changes. On what to do? Well, you know, we're likely to see a necessary improvement in relations with France. President Macron said so in his initial call to Albanese. We've been told that there will be a new emphasis on Southeast Asia, which has long been a focus of attention by Penny Wong. And above all, on climate change, as we've said several times, and I, I note, for example, that the EU has now said that we can move forward on a free trade example. There'll be other indications like that to
0: come. Mm. I see some parallels between Labor's victory and the victory of the Democrats in the United States in 2020 under Joe Biden. There is one big thing that's relatively easy to change, and which the world is clamoring for and we'll immediately accumulate political capital. For Biden, that was re-engaging with allies and partners and multilateral institutions. And for Labor, it is, of course, reversing our attitude or Australia's attitude on climate change. However, that good news, I think, hides the significant structural constraints facing both governments. For the US, it's been shown to be domestic politics, exemplified by the White House's lack of capacity to do anything meaningful on economic engagement with Asia. For Australia, the structural constraints are more our, our size, the fact that in most instances we just don't have the capabilities to affect sweeping change or project significant influence. Moreover, we should remember that budget realities are about to bite. The previous government spent big to keep the country hmm. you know, afloat during the pandemic, and that was the correct thing to do. But at some point these fiscal choices are going to present themselves and add further constraints to foreign policy ambitions or any policy ambition for that matter. Everything can, however, be improved by, I think, leveraging the goodwill, the political capital that will come from climate change action. I think also from using the clean slate offered by a change of government after a long time with the previous uh, incumbent, to recenter diplomatic relationships without the baggage and in many cases scarring to think of France of comments and actions you know taken by the previous government especially when they were motivated by domestic politics so other than following through on climate promises i'd encourage all members of the new government to maintain discipline when it comes to talking about australia and the world but how can the government spend any newly acquired political capital Like you, Alan, I think the idea of laying foundations for the long term is the right approach rather than seeking big, flashy announcements or short-term deliverables. You know, I think careful and empathetic diplomacy that seeks to understand the interests of our region and shape their choices rather than kind of imposing upon them is the right way to go. Now, I think we should bring in at this point some of the events from the past week to fill out our analysis a bit more. Right after they were sworn into their offices, Prime Minister Albanese and Foreign Minister Wong travelled to Tokyo for the Quad leaders meeting. Did things unfold there as you expected, Alan? And does anything really need to change with the way Australia engages with our allies and partners like the three other Quad countries?
1: It played out just as um, the PM and foreign minister said it would during the election campaign. They'd foreshadowed Labor's support for the US alliance, you know, no surprises there, for AUKUS and the Quad, and they delivered. I thought it was interesting that they took to Tokyo a very conventional and familiar team of officials who were already known to their foreign partners, so there were familiar faces in the room, for all the Prime Ministers uh, and uh, the President. They sent the right messages, including on climate change, and they sent them in the right way. You don't get a second chance to make a first impression, and there's no sign that Albanese and Wong did not make precisely the impression they wanted from Australia's point of view, including by making that Herculean effort to get there, which was acknowledged by uh, President Biden.
0: Let's then turn to China. Um, What's your expectation and or your advice to our new leaders regarding management of that bilateral relationship? Um,
1: Same as the advice I've been giving for ages, Darren, including on this podcast. Uh, As I wrote in an article in Australian Foreign Affairs three years ago, we have to be clear about our goals with China, consistent in the way we pursue them, calm in the face of some of the wilder claims about Beijing's intentions and confident in our values. And this seems to me to be pretty consistent with what we've heard in these initial phases from the um, Albanese government. On China, one interesting outcome of the election was the very clear way in which Chinese Australians moved their votes to Labor. And this was unusual because there'd been earlier data from several years ago showing basically the Chinese Australians voted in almost exactly the same proportions as other Australians. I don't think this shift this year was out of support for the BRC or the Communist Party or because of, you know, subterfuge and malign influence, but really just concern about the crudeness of some of the language we were hearing about the imminence of war with China and uh, Chinese-Australians being asked to declare their loyalty uh, to the country and so on. So that will have registered, I think, with both political parties.
0: Mm. I actually want to return to the Tokyo trip for a moment because I think Prime Minister Albanese faced a real test in Tokyo at a press conference on the 24th of May because he was asked multiple times about China. The Chinese had actually maybe complicated his life a little bit with a state media article uh, being published the night before, which had said that Premier Li had sent a message of congratulations uh, to the Prime Minister. So he was asked about that. He was asked what he would need from China to reset the relationship. He was asked about Taiwan and Joe Biden's recent controversial comments about aiding Taiwan, if it were, uh, attacked. And he was also asked presumably by a Western Australian reporter, if he owed it to West Australians given they delivered for Labor in the election to fix the China relationship. And altogether, this was quite a test, I think. Words matter, they matter to Beijing and they matter because they can have domestic political implications in Australia. And I don't think I can overemphasise this. Every single thing you say matters when it comes to China and how you say it. Every time you go out there, you can do unnecessary damage either to the bilateral relationship or to your own political standing at home if you say, you know, if you, you know, the wrong thing. I don't like to use the word wrong, but I think listeners will know what I mean. So you have to strike a very, very fine balance between being respectful towards the Chinese but clear on where you stand. And we criticised the previous government for being too loose with its language which in my view came from them being more focused relatively on the domestic angle and less on Australia's broader national interest. And look, I think he passed the test. He said he would respond appropriately to Premier Lee when he got home, but he welcomed it. He batted away very neatly the Taiwan issue. He criticised China's trade sanctions on Australia and emphasised that it was China that changed rather than Australia. Now, whether you agree with all that 100%, I think he managed to walk the line very well. But stepping back, to me, the declaratory position of the previous government, um, or at least Foreign Minister Payne, who said this from time to time, that Australia was willing to talk without preconditions to Beijing, remains, I think, the correct one. A new government in Canberra gives Beijing somewhat of an off-ramp to the (laughs) no-talking diplomatic freeze without the need for an explicit concession from Canberra. But the structural barriers to returning the relationship to anything like it was before 2018 by which i mean with these barriers fundamental conflicts of interest these aren't going away not much is going to change from most of the 14 grievances infamously articulated by the chinese embassy in canberra while on the australian side the trade barriers remain and multiple australian citizens are in chinese prisons so i don't think that a reset quote unquote you know is feasible but hopefully a slow, gradual transition that would begin with a higher level conversation, be followed perhaps by a quiet melting away slowly of some, but probably not all of the trade barriers, followed by more conversations and perhaps some cooperation on areas of joint interest down the track, whether that's climate change or perhaps, I think intriguingly, on the South Pacific. So let's actually on that point turn to the wider region After returning to Australia, as you alluded to, Alan, Foreign Minister Wong pretty much got on a plane and travelled to Fiji straight away for her first solo trip as Foreign Minister. Now, this trip comes, of course, in the wake of the controversial security agreement between Solomon Islands and China, and coincides with a lengthy eight-day trip to the region by Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi, who apparently is going to visit as many as eight countries. Um, And that visit is ongoing as we record. Moreover, just a few days ago on Wednesday, it was reported that China is seeking a region-wide agreement with as many as 10 Pacific states that would cover policing, security, and data communication. A draft communique and a five-year action plan was leaked to the media. So Alan, during the campaign, the now new government was critical of its predecessor's policy in the Pacific. How can they improve things?
1: Well, first, by doing exactly what uh, Penny Wong has done, uh, getting on a plane and start talking to people. And if it was hard to set off for Tokyo immediately after a gruelling election campaign, I can only imagine how much tougher it must have been for her to head straight for Fiji as soon as she got back. And this will be noticed. Secondly, she's improving things by showing... Pacific states that Australia understands and shares their concern about the long-term impact of climate change on the vulnerable small states and that she will act with them on the issue. You know, we're listening was the mm. uh, mantra that mm. came through often in what she said there. All of this should, I think this is an, this is an important point, should help restore the unity of the Pacific Islands Forum the PIF as it's known, and re-establish its functions as the region's principal institution through which it has traditionally engaged with outside dialogue partners. So I reckon PIF centrality should be a rallying call for us just as ASEAN centrality is in Southeast Asia will make it much easier to deal with uh, external partners. We obviously also need ways of communicating directly with China on the Pacific and our expectations of its behaviour there. Although, as we've already uh, talked about, that's uh, part of the bigger debate.
0: Yeah, I agree, Alan. PIF centrality, thats I like that. And to follow up on that last point, we need to find a way, I think, to work with China in the region, rather than trying to exclude them, which just won't succeed. And Finding that path is going to be very difficult, but I think potentially very fertile. And it's the kind of challenge that I think is very appealing because it requires both creative intellect, but also first class diplomatic execution to pull off. With the goal being you know, to accept a degree of rising China's influence, but mitigating the security concerns and the domestic political risks that flow from Beijing's specific engagement. All right, Alan, well, let's move to the final part of the podcast and each take a swing and propose matters that we personally would have wanted to be included in an incoming government brief, perhaps some ideas getting less attention in public discourse. What do you have?
1: Well, for me, COVID didn't get enough coverage during the election campaign, despite the fact that it's dominated our lives so enormously over the past couple of years. And from the foreign policy perspective, for me, that means how Australia can contribute to the still essential efforts to deal better with future pandemics, and these are surely going to come. Helen Clark, who's the former New Zealand Prime Minister, of course, who co-chaired the WHO's independent panel on pandemic preparedness and response, with Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, and we, former President of Liberia, and we talked about that when it came out. Um, she raised the need again for action before the World Health Assembly meeting. This week, and they called their report update uh, "transforming" or "tinkering?" Question mark. Inaction lays the groundwork for another pandemic. So we do somehow need to move beyond the political divisions on this question and deal with it from the first principles of health. No country has anything to lose by this. You know that needs repeating. No country has anything to lose from proper pandemic preparedness and response. So it's a real test of whether we can accomplish anything multilaterally in the current environment, and I think Australia has a lot to contribute. And I just want to note, by the way, that the just finished World Health Assembly meeting that I was talking about was the very one that Clive Palmer's United Australia Party told us in those garish advertisements during the election campaign was going to take over the Australian health system. Well, so far as I can see, that hasn't happened. Uh, Look, my second issue would be how Australia can work with Indonesia to save the G20 after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. We've talked about this before, but the stakes there are really high.
0: Great. Well, thanks, Alan. I've been reflecting on Penny Wong's speech at the ANU's National Security College last November. And in that speech, she describes three drivers for expanding Australian power and influence that were going to be central to Labor's foreign policy. The first is projecting a modern Australia, and the second is fostering partnerships grounded in trust. And I think to some extent, we've touched upon both of those already today. The third is enhancing our diplomatic capability, Where I want to raise two points, and perhaps they're better framed as questions. First, Senator Wong clearly believes, and we've said this already today, that diplomacy is a distinct skill set. And you and I share this belief. But if that's true, the act of conducting diplomacy is one of a number of discrete capabilities required by DFAT officers to carry out the department's work. Other skills include the capability to think strategically, to write quickly and communicate, to collaborate with other departments, and of course to manage. And management ranges from traditional employee management questions to running development assistance programs and grants and working with contractors. We know that there are some who believe that outstanding members of the Australian Public Service can succeed in DFAT no matter where they come from. And indeed, the appointment of the current DFAT secretary, who had zero diplomatic experience, is in line with that logic. But if one believes that diplomacy is a distinct capability acquired by formal training, plus, more importantly, on-the-ground experience of what happens in diplomatic missions, then it follows that those coming across from elsewhere are much less likely to have it when they commence with DFAT. Now, one way to improve the output of an organization is to invest more resources in it. And if the government wants to increase DFAT's budget, then terrific. But another way that can be closer to cost neutral is to reallocate resources. And this includes human resources inside the organization more effectively. In other words, improve the division of labor and reap the benefits of specialization. So my question is, What's the division of labor like inside DFAT, or for that matter, across government generally? The comparison I have in mind is the US State Department, where there is a foreign service who spend most of their time abroad, and a civil service whose employees remain in the United States, but work on the full range of State Department business. I assume DFAT isn't large enough to make a formal distinction like that, but I do hope that someone somewhere is asking whether the current division of labour is optimal. And look, I certainly appreciate there are limits to this. We don't want the same diplomat in one country for 10 years, no matter, you know, how deep their expertise. But I do wonder if there might be ways to allocate capabilities better by recognising the differences in what the department does, and thereby improve the effectiveness of the entire organisation. You know, you've got more experience in this than me. Do you have any comment on that idea?
1: Well, when I joined the very small Department of External Affairs in 1969, Australia did, in fact, have a separate uh, foreign service. But it merged very shortly after that with the wider Australian public service mainly because the diplomats felt uh, quite correctly that they were getting a much worse deal on salaries and conditions than the uh, home-based staff. So, look, I agree that there are many possible divisions of labour within DFAT and improvements can always be found to the way the overseas network is managed, but I really doubt that a division into two separate services is a necessary or efficient way of achieving that. But you're quite right, the management of a foreign service in contemporary times, particularly post-COVID, is going to need really deep thinking about. Mm. Mm.
0: And importantly, potentially a closer to cost-neutral way of increasing capability, yep. which was yeah. the, the new foreign minister's focus. My second point then is to take this idea of the division of labour and apply it at the international level. As we've said many times, Alan, that the breadth, depth, and complexity of the foreign policy challenges we face feels unprecedented at a time when the scope of our interests is wider than ever. But we cannot do everything, so how do we avoid the risk of taking on too much and doing none of it well? A division of labour is one answer which would conceive of international cooperation not just in terms of working together on joint initiatives but some kind of coordination where different countries take the lead on different issues and on some level, coordinating countries accept that leadership, and that would be the hard part. I agree. It's not the perfect analogy, but I'm thinking in my mind of multinational military operations that come under a single command of one country, even as the individual country units retain a strong measure of national autonomy. Does this happen in foreign policy? You know, for example, the little I've heard about the capability of the United States to exercise influence in the South Pacific is that it is not strong. So could it ever be possible that, you know, resources could somehow be combined under the leadership of Australia and New Zealand, for example? And of course, the implication would be that somehow, somewhere, Australia accepts another's leadership in other parts of the world. For example, in parts of Asia. Now, this may be a non-starter, especially given the new foreign minister's focus on Southeast Asia. But Alan, how feasible or how terrible a concept is a division of labour between like-minded countries on foreign policy issues? Look, it depends
1: on how formally you're talking about it. In in many ways, it happens already. Um, In the South Pacific, for example, Australia has traditionally let New Zealand specialise in engaging with Polynesia while we... Concentrated on Melanesia, we often agree to pursue common aims in different parts of the world with like-minded partners on, you know, support for treaties. Uh, for example, we outsource our consular uh, responsibilities to Canada in mm. uh, in some places, but you know, foreign policy is really not like a military operation, which has a a single objective. It's the part of statecraft in which the nation state manages its relationships with other countries and carves out space so that it is always as options and it's not forced or coerced along certain paths. And that depends so deeply on specific national interests and the particular history and background of bilateral relationships that it really just can't be outsourced. So the fact is Australia will always have to deal in its own right and on its own behalf, certainly with the countries of Southeast Asia, but even with uh, more distant places like the Caribbean or or West Africa.
0: That's very persuasive, Alan. I, I can't disagree with you, certainly in principle. I do just wonder if that logic that some things can never be outsourced holds true under all conditions Because if you follow it through at some point, breadth starts to take away from depth. Anyway, food for thought. Let's turn for home and finish with reading, listening and watching. I might go first this week. Around a decade ago, one of my favorite bands was the Australian indie rock group, The Jezebels. And this coming month in June, they're going to be doing a tour around Australia in the major capital cities to celebrate the 10th anniversary of their first full album, Prisoner. I'm pretty excited to have tickets to go to the concert in Canberra. Um, I can't remember the last time I went to to live music, uh, and I've concluded that it's worth probably the risk of getting COVID. But I do believe there are tickets going in most cities. So if you are a Jezebels fan, please look them up. Um, some of my favourite songs include A Little Piece, Rosebud and All You Need. Alan.
1: Well, look, neatly summarising our generational differences, Darren, I'll go for something uh, I haven't actually heard or watched yet, but I will be seeing tomorrow night in uh, in Melbourne. We're going down to see the musical play The Girl from the North Country written by the Irish playwright Connor McPherson uh, with uh, Bob Dylan's songs. Now, I know we have high critical standards on this podcast, so if it turns out to be crap, I will let you and our
0: listeners know before the Canberra season begins. Please do, Alan, because for the record, I will happily go to that if I get the opportunity. All right, well, that's all for today's episode of Australia in the World. We thank Dominic Yap for stepping in today with audio editing and thanks also to Rory Stenning for composing our theme music. We'll talk to you again soon.